thought India is no place for women entrepreneurs? Think again. Lizzie Chapman has always loved India. Growing up as a child of working class parents in London, Lizzie would spend weekends mostly watching Hindi movies back to back, something that even her South Mumbai bred husband hadn't done all his life. Her connection with India came largely from her mother who had worked with the Red Cross organization and it also helped that she lived in a part of London where more than half the population was South Asian. That's precisely why she didn't have any qualms about moving to India a decade ago when many of her colleagues weren't ready for the big gamble, even though they knew the fintech growth story in India was only just getting started. Listen to her story of how she is building Zest Money, a revolutionary fintech company, breaking the norms, sharing her insights into problem solving, mastering the art of fundraising, and much, much more. Welcome to today's episode of Women on Top. Lizzie Chapman is the CEO and co-founder of Zest Money, a company that leverages mobile technology, digital banking, and artificial intelligence to make life more affordable for millions of Indian consumers. She recently bagged the top honors in the Woman Ahead category of the Economic Times Startup Awards 2021. Congratulations, Lizzie, and thank you for making the time today. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you. (laughs) Listen, you began your career working in Goldman Sachs and, um, and then went on to entrepreneurship, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more later because it didn't start with the fintech industry as far as I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell me how working in an investment bank impacted you as a professional to start with. Mm, good question. And I know you have a somewhat traditional background as well, traditional in the financial sense. So I didn't know anything about money when I was growing up. I grew up in a very kind of artsy family. When I started at Goldman and I said to someone, I don't think I know what the word interest rate means, because it just wasn't part of my, you know, my growing up. So I got lured by the excitement of something I didn't understand. And I think that's driven a lot of what I've done in life, right? I am very curious. Uh, I always want to be learning new things. And I think working in a place like Goldman Sachs is one of the best opportunities for someone who doesn't really know what they want to do but you know is very ambitious and very curious so I started out there just because I was really fascinated by money and then the more I learned about money (laughs) the more I realized how badly designed you know the world systems are and I think sometimes and I talk about this um, in the India context I think sometimes when you come at a problem statement with no baggage and no background information you can have like clearer perceptions right so I set, suddenly sort of realized that it could be better ways of doing financial services and my job at Goldman by the way was to study banks global banks and research them and analyze them and write reports about them so I got a kind of bird's eye view or a ringside seat onto how banks work and made a sort of wish list of things I would do better (laughs) and so that leads to where uh, the interest of fintech came from and I got really fascinated by how you could use technology to make banks better and it felt like at the time that was a very you know exciting but nascent area and then over time that's kind of exploded so it was a good call in the long run. 
No, for sure. And I totally agree with you on coming at something, um, you know, without any background in a way, because it just it yeah. really is about what you want to do without having the sort of, you know, following the, the formal program that you should in a way. It's about what, you know, we, we came into hospitality in the same way without any background. <laughs> and uh, but speaking of hospitality, I know that that's where I first met you, actually, as a fellow hospitality yeah. professional, um, before you, you uh, sort of made this uber successful uh, fintech venture so uh, you were leading yeah. a big hotel venture and yeah. you know tell us a little bit about yeah. that version <laughs> before the world of fintech and um, and of course what you know led you to take that plunge finally into yeah. entrepreneurship it's yeah it's funny it's not that random but it does sound like it when you put it like that so I'd actually come out to India as an expat uh, working for a startup in London uh, in fintech so that was that was quite normal and I had this really nice apartment and I had this really nice life and I absolutely fell in love with with living and working in Mumbai but what happened is a lot of visitors would come and stay and they'd always stay um in either like a five-star hotel and then tell me oh that was a bit boring and plasticky uh, or they'd stay in like a local guest house which had like you know blood on the sheets and rats running around and so they always wanted to end up staying in my house and I was like this is ridiculous why are there no mid-priced good quality boutique hotels and I was traveling all over India at that time and you know you'll know in places like Kochi and obviously uh, Rajasthan there's some amazing very authentic uh, F&B experiences and so honestly it was more just a constant you know frustration about why isn't anyone doing this so maybe I'm a control freak but I wanted to kind of fix a problem that I saw which is actually the same in fintech um, also at the same time and this is a bit of a boring part of the story uh, the fintech company in the UK was shutting down and they needed to pay me to stay on in India and help them unwind the company but it was important that I didn't work in a competing company. So they asked if I could fill my time doing something completely different to fintech. So when um, that opportunity, but you know, how often do you get a year of your life where someone says, we'll pay you to do something completely different? Um, that was the time to start. And it was just perfect coincidence. I met my co-founder, Abby, who I think you know, and there was a really good opportunity on a property that was exactly what I had imagined. Um, so I think, yeah, the timing was everything the stars aligned and it turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life and I'm going to tell you this I can say working in hospitality in India is a hundred times harder than anything else I've done in my life <laughs> it's so hard and that's I can I'm back you up on that one <laughs> it's insane and it looks so simple from the outside but to do it well and to do it consistently and to maintain that, you know, what we call in technology user experience is so hard in, in the real world of hospitality. And so it was a baptism of fire on, you know, doing business, understanding consumers, all these skills, uh, working with local regulation, et cetera, um, skills that have helped me build my business now. So one of the best experiences of my life. Amazing. I mean, that was very brave of you to do on your on your gap year in a way <laughs> um, but you know and then you you went on to um, co-found uh, Zest Money in 2015 right um, and you know at that point as far as I know with my limited understanding of the fintech ecosystem uh, it was it was far smaller 
to what it is now, uh, at least in India. So what made you take this sort of bet on fintech in India, and especially as sort of an outsider in this country? Yeah, no, a bit like a bit like the hotel. It was a constant questioning of why has no one done this? This is so obvious. Um, so I'd seen something that I couldn't unsee. That's how I sometimes describe it, and it became an obsession. Basically, at that time, if you remember, Geo had launched. Uh, internet data was becoming so available, so cheap. Smartphones were getting cheaper and cheaper. You also had an explosion in digital commerce. So you know, Flipkart, Make My Trip. Paytm, these companies began and were really exploding. So it was like this digital consumer was expecting more from life, right? Had greater aspirations than ever before. And there were more digital consumers coming online faster than had ever happened in history, in the world. So it's this a really amazing kind of time in history. At the same time, banks and financial institutions were not really taking it seriously. And I could still see that from from my network and experiences um, and I've been doing some voluntary work with you know things like around UPI and India stack and so I could see that the infrastructure and the opportunity was amazing but very few people were building on top of that um, the specific problem we decided to solve in fintech is one of affordability and what we observed was you know there were all these amazing products being sold online or um, holidays to goa or lovely new laptops and smartphones but people's incomes hadn't changed dramatically right so you know the average income of one of our customers is the equivalent of say £250 or $300, but the products they want to buy cost a lot more than that. And at the same time, we have a credit card penetration that's one of the lowest in the world. Uh, less than 30 million people regularly use a credit card in India, which is insane if you think about it, because 500 million people use WhatsApp every day. So it's not about you know digital savviness. Um, we believe that credit cards are the wrong product for India. And most consumers in this country would prefer not to use a credit card. So that was the opportunity. We said, how can we make the products more affordable by working with the brands, the e-commerce companies, the travel companies? And how can we get them to pay the cost of credit so that we can get more people um, into the financial ecosystem? And that's exactly what we said about it. No one had really done it at that time. There were some traditional offline companies that had done it, NBFCs, but we wanted to use technology. So um, that was why. And then we brought across some of our technology in our team from London from that previous fintech and it was just yeah it was just really good timing India was booming so they were excited to come back to India uh, and it just yeah again the stars aligned good timing yeah. so uh, I'm a little you know tech challenged in multiple ways yeah. and I want to kind of break this down and ask you a bit more I understand about the credit card usage being low here because I think it's always seen as a, a sort of bad uh, thing yeah. to do you know it's like going down the rabbit hole and then you know exactly. it's, it's just you know it's not something that you want to get started on which I completely disagree with and I think that it can be used really smartly you you know you you kind of have to be aware of how to you know manage your yeah. credit card but is this is what you're doing so you're just just to sort of make it clear for everyone your whole idea is buy now pay later and that's the sort of fundamental you know the product offering of uh, your obsessed money so how is this different from emis can you just explain that mm. you know because 
that is something that we yeah. read all the time, especially when it comes to, you know, yeah. consumer products. And, uh, you know, th- that's the biggest sell is, is EMI, EMI, cars, yeah. um, electronic goods, etc. So uh, can you explain how it's different? Yeah, actually, it's not. There you go. Shocker. It's kind of the same thing. So EMI um, needs equal monthly installment. And exactly as you said, it's the way of buying an expensive product over a few months uh, by splitting the cost. That is actually something that's existed in India for many, many years. It's actually more socially understood, acceptable, culturally understood than credit card, to your point. We almost think it's a made in India concept because years ago, even you know, small retailers would offer credit to their customers in that way. And even in your industry, I think it's fair to say even wholesale credit is offered in that way, pay over time. What's funny is a few years ago, some uh, Western companies invented this buy now, pay later, which is basically EMI. (laughs) What they've done is make it more digital, uh, much more tech enabled, and we can talk about that, but also brought, because of the technology, brought the ticket size down. So even now a lipstick could effectively be bought on EMI, but we don't say buy a lipstick on EMI because that sounds a bit weird. So we say buy a lipstick, buy now, pay later. The biggest difference, um, however, However, that determines, I would say, a BNPL versus one offered by like a traditional bank or a traditional credit company is one of transparency and no hidden fees. Because what we've learned is all over the world, including in India, consumers are very, very savvy now and very cynical, as they should be, about the idea of hidden costs, hidden fees, hidden charges. So those EMI schemes you see in the shop will always say, you know, no cost EMI, zero cost. And then there'll be this small print with like, oh, but you have to pay 499 rupees to change your bank account or whatever. Um, And that's what we're trying to kind of rally against. We want credit to be completely transparent, completely honest in the way that we deliver it. And we also want it to be much lower cost. You shouldn't have to pay all those high fees if the product is delivered digitally like UPI. So we try and work with the ecosystem, with the e-commerce company, to bring down the cost to offer it and of course we don't have any branches and we have very few people so the costs are much much lower so typically a buy now pay later scheme will be much cheaper and again much more transparent than a traditional EMI. So what you're saying is that the fact that you're a digitally based uh, product is what's really uh, being used to your advantage in terms of the cost saving. Uh, Totally. Okay. Yeah. And and from the time you started in 2015, now sort of six years later, um, of course, with the last year and a half going completely digitally um, mental, you know, how have you seen an evolution yeah. on the usage of your product in, in the last six years? Yeah, no, it's incredible. It's just been like, someone said this this morning, things happen very, very slowly, and then they suddenly happen very fast. And that's exactly what the journey has been like. I think the first four years were quite frustrating. It was it was slow, and we had to spend our life educating the market. We've, I spent many, many hours of my life that I'll never get back trying to educate, you know, um, banks and retailers and MBFCs about this new concept. But then suddenly in the last 18 months, we we have a problem of plenty. I don't even have time to meet all the, the clients because we just have so much demand. I think what happened is 
a combination of, you know, UPI, which was anyway rolling out, and then the physical implications of the pandemic um, came together to sort of push a lot of customers that were previously a bit nervous about digital. Uh, and I mean specifically digital money, because doing WhatsApp or watching YouTube is one thing, but the minute money gets involved, it becomes very emotional, quite scary. And even the most digitally savvy customers would, you know, prefer to go back to cash. I'm sure you you see that, right? Cash is still king for a lot of consumers. So the pandemic was just a great catalyst to get those more nervous customers over the hurdle of let me try a digital financial product. And now, you know, the sky is the limit because what's happened is banks have seen that and changed the way they operate. You've had, you know, this influx of these amazing apps like Google Pay, Phone Pay that are incentivizing that behavior shift. And so it's like an unstoppable, you know, force now that's just growing faster and faster every month. We saw 5X growth year on year. So this Diwali, we're going to be 5X stronger than the year before. That's like unheard of. And that's nothing we've done. That's completely organic. So um, I guess it's a good learning, but you know, being in the right place at the right time is one of the, the tricks of success in any business. But sometimes you have to be patient and wait for that timing to play out. So, you know, I mean, that's amazing on the numbers, the growth, uh, but across the globe, very few BNPL firms are actually making profits. How have you cracked the business model? That you've done your research, Mary. That's the kind of dirty little secret of, of not just BNPL of tech in general. Um, yes, it is. It is a bit of a conundrum, even to us. You know, how can you be processing billions of dollars of volume and not be making any money? Um, we don't believe that this should be a loss-making business. That's not sustainable. Uh, especially anything in financial services has to have a sustainable business model. In our opinion, that's probably a bit old-fashioned, but we we've always felt like that we're all ex-bankers or have worked in banking um, and we know that you know there'll be cycles where unprofitable businesses are, are popular and fashionable with investors but it's not going to be a sustainable business model the good news is in India we found because there are so many brands and you know retail chains and e-commerce companies that are desperate to get consumers shopping it's very easy for us to make revenue from them so we always prefer to price the most you know revenue towards the brands that we work with not the consumer we want to keep the pricing extremely low for the consumer but we've had great success doing that and especially over the last 18 months because brands are actually very excited they're also seeing this growth in digital consumption and they want to enable their customers to participate so the truth of our business model is we get paid by people like Apple or Samsung um, or Reliance to operate alongside them and we think that that is a very sustainable business model as long as they're still continuing to operate and believe in India then we will always make you know decent economics the biggest cost in our business of course is whether our customers choose to pay us back or not and that's also something that we have spent such a long time perfecting going deep deep into that problem statement um, and that improves every single year every single month and the more we can improve our skill set of getting our money back, um, the more money we make bottom line, and that will make us sustainable. So we're nearly there. We're actually sort of break even right now. Uh, and that's that's a good place to be in technology these days. <laughs> Not many people can say that. 
That's amazing. So you, you know, I mean, obviously the India story has a lot to do with why it's different from what's happening in the rest of the world. Yeah. But where, you know, you obviously had your finger on the pulse since you uh, started working. So where do you see the biggest opportunity for disruption in the future? Oh my God, that's so exciting. Um, the obvious thing to say is is crypto, but I think that's getting a bit like overdone now. But I do think we have to start thinking about how we apply what's called decentralized finance to all industries. So, you know, it's one thing to understand that the internet and technology will change everything. But we're now at a level, I would say, in the world of thinking, who governs the internet? Who owns the internet? Who owns the customer? And so I think the biggest disruptions are going to come in the next few years as we put ownership back into the customer's hands, not the big tech company or government. So that's where I see a lot of exciting things happening. There's a really, really cool thing happening in India that not enough people know about called the Account Aggregator Program. And this is actually being built by a government-backed like coalition of banks. And what it will do is create an open architecture system, a technology platform, where you and me have access to all our transaction data that we've ever created across all financial instruments, bank accounts, wallets, everything. And we can access that data as if it's like our KYC and share it with anyone we want so that we own that data. This is a game-changing concept because in the rest of the world, the reason why like a Facebook is so valuable is because they own your data. Yeah, the, in, yeah, the Indian regulators are kind of saying the opposite. Actually, the consumer should own their own data and choose to give it to the tech company. And I think that's a really game-changing kind of bold concept and if we can pull that off in India it will change the path of technology and the digital economy because people keep talking about you know data is the new oil well I want a consumer to have access to that oil not a big tech company so I think India is a really exciting place to be right now in technology from a regulatory and sort of policy perspective as well as just the innovation that we're seeing. Well we're starting to see I mean just speaking of data which is you know so integral to everything even in our business you know where where like deliveries you know when when crazy last in the last 18 months and you know we've, we've been had this big battle with the aggregators over data right but you're kind of seeing a very like slow shift towards because with the privacy laws changing and you having to now yeah. overtly give yeah. permission to use your data um, but yes we're still a long way away from yeah. you know, actually having ownership of it which um, correct and, and and also understanding for the average consumer to understand what they're what, what's yes we need a lot more education agree agree exactly. and that's I think that's the duty of all of us um, as citizens we can't leave it in the hands of the government we have to uh, educate ourselves educate people um, and make sure that people understand that you know they are in control and that consent to data sharing is very very critical because a lot of wealth has been built to your point including the aggregators on the back of data that they basically took from us right and I think we um as consumers need to kind of bring that power shift back, but it does require a mass awareness and education initiative. Agreed. So what is, um, you know, I mean, this all sounds very exciting, but tell me some of the things that frustrate you about your industry or your business. (laughs) Oh God, where to start? Uh, (laughs) No, Um, I'm an optimist. So I try not to think about that. 
I think there are um, a couple of challenges. One, one we've always faced, which is how do we work with the traditional banks and financial institutions? And it's always been tough because in a way, our, our message to them is you're doing it wrong. We have a better idea. Um, and I think if you go into a partnership with that message, it is, it is challenging. But I would say it's really evolved in the last 18 months. Again, thanks to what we've seen and, and the behaviors that emerged in the pandemic banks and traditional financial institutions cannot ignore digital anymore and so they're much more open-minded they're much more receptive but I can still remember meetings you know five or six years ago where people literally laughed at our face <laughs> that was quite difficult to take because we were so committed to what we were building um I think the other thing that's it's not talked about enough, but it's becoming a big, big, big challenge in India and technology is people and human capital. And that was actually my, my biggest challenge in the in the hospitality industry. It is tough, you know, training and retaining the talent is really hard, but it's now becoming a huge issue in tech because the world is now hiring from India. We have, yeah. you know, I think like four million engineers come out of colleges every year, but I think three and a half million of them get snapped up by big global companies. And so there is a real talent shortage, believe it or not, versus the growth of the industry. Um, and we're really struggling now to compete with these big global companies that just pay lots of money. So we have to hire people for passion and love um, and learning, a bit like you probably. Um, and that's that's great because we have a really lovely culture and it's very mission driven, but it's a constant effort and it's a lot of work. Um, I don't think India has kept up, you know, from an education perspective with the growth that we've seen in technology and so that's a great opportunity as well and I think we will and we will catch up over the next few years but right now I think the whole industry is struggling with talent it's tough <laughs> and and also you know the, the growing gig economy right that's what yes. um, no one wants to work full-time <laughs> we have this problem I don't think there is a designer that exists in the country that will work full-time anymore. They, everyone wants to work part-time. Everyone wants to work from Goa. Everybody wants you know, <laughs> perfect millennial life. So it's hard. It is yeah. hard. Yeah. yeah. So that's definitely, I mean, that's a challenge across the board, like you said. Um, coming to your, uh, you know, you've been uber successful with your fundraising over the years and uh, you've had several rounds of of, uh, of raising and you're also on the board of um, of India Caution. So you're, you're seeing it from both sides can you sort of share sort of three things that you know entrepreneurs going for a raise say for the first time should keep in mind mm. based on your experience yeah no and actually um I was talking about this this weekend I think um especially as a female and I I hate to say that, but especially as a female, um, it's really, really, really important how you present yourself in the initial meetings. And what I mean by that is women typically will be more rational and have more self-doubt than men. And that's, I mean, that's actually a, a proven fact. There's lots of yeah. Harvard studies that show that women will underestimate their abilities and competencies and men will overestimate. And, and that's just the way society brings us up. But in fundraising, that's a problem because it means that you tend to sort of, you know, cut down your answers, cut down your ambition. And that's exactly the wrong thing to do. Any investor, especially in the early stages, 
is looking for extremely high levels of ambition and conviction. And so I think what we did well, certainly in the early stages, was we sounded audacious, right? We were fresh off the boat from England. Um, we were two women raising money in India. And we said, yeah, we're going after a market that's you know worth billions of dollars. We're going to have 200 million customers and crazy stuff like that. And that was really valuable because they're like, wow, they're mad. But, you know, <laughs> You've got to be mad to do this. So I'm going to back them. And I think that's really important. And a lot of the time I hear from women pitching and they say, oh, you know, it's a small market today, but I'll grow it. Or I'm only going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And I think, no, dream big, like be audacious, have the biggest goal you can, because, you know, what's that for? You can shoot for the moon or shoot for the stars and land on the moon. Yeah. It's really important to have an ambition. So that's probably number one. Um, but then saying that, number two, really important, be yourself. Don't put on an act. And I think the times when we were unsuccessful with fundraising is when I tried to act like a typical CEO. And I'd watch, you know, videos of like the Uber CEO being really like arrogant and loud. And, and then I try and replicate that. Of course you can't. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And so I think, you know, just genuine authenticity wins you a lot more respect, a lot more favors. It's also, by the way, my top like management tip, I'm sure you would agree. When you are more, you know, authentic and real and bring your whole self to work, your people respect you more, they connect with you more, and you know, that ends up making you a better leader. So I think be be very genuine. Don't think that you have to pretend. Um, and then hmm, probably the third one is a bit controversial, but I would say <laughs> Do your own sort of checking out of the other person. Do not assume that all money is equal. Uh, we have made some mistakes, and but we've dodged some mistakes. Taking money from the wrong person, raising money from people you don't respect or don't respect you is the worst thing you can do. And if I look at many of my friends or people in my industry who have not flourished as well the biggest baggage they have is investors that have dragged them down it's really important that you bring on board investors that understand you understand your business and really deeply you know push you forward rather than question you or second guess you or tell you what to do and again as a woman that's really important because you will get doubted more you will get questioned more you need supporters around you you need cheerleaders around you you can't have cynics in the room so <laughs> That would be my advice, yes. Very, very true and very important. Um, you know, I think it's, like you said, it's a lot about meeting of minds, right? I mean, whether you're you know, as management or as sort of investor, investee relationship. So I think that that's so important. Yeah. You touched upon being you and your co-founder coming into India and, and being like, I'm going to I'm gonna take over the world here. What's it like working as a foreigner in India? I mean, I know you're as sort of an Indophile as, as any of them are, but, you know, what's that experience? experience been like not just a woman working in India but a foreign woman working in India you really kind of you you, you did it all so <laughs> yeah and, and then go into an industry that's like completely male dominated yeah so uh, <laughs> I think that again I'm an optimist I turn I turn negative into positive um it's 
been amazing. I mean, first of all, I'm just so grateful. I think I've had a bigger opportunity here than I would have in the UK. I think um, I wasn't, I'm not exceptional enough in the UK to have, have done such great things, but for some reason I managed it here. So that speaks to an amazingly supportive ecosystem. No, people are just so wonderful. People are so approachable. I think what's really lovely about India is people are very proud right as a nation we are proud I certainly feel like that now I want people to have the best experience when they come to India and that feeds through even professionally so people have always been really really helpful really supportive we've not faced any barriers because of that maybe the opposite actually I think we've had more doors open I also think yeah as I said a bit of naivety sometimes helps so you can also <laughs> if you do something wrong you can claim that you didn't know which is a, and it's you know silly little things but like we've you know we've made really good friends with the local police force because they're fascinated by me they think it's really bizarre that there's this you know English woman doing what we do so we we, we do lots of charity with them and they come and have lunch with us and that's been lovely because you know they they help us out if we need it so I think um generally net net this is a great place actually to to be uh, a foreigner if, as long as you you know are respectful and contextual and and make an effort you know uh, and I and I do I do as much as I possibly can to kind of fit in and blend in and um, and I think that's important but yeah I can't I can't say it's been a challenge if anything I think it's been easier and I think to some extent the weirdness of uh, my foreignness <laughs> takes away and makes people forget the gender so it's probably helped me there as well <laughs> I think you know more people in Bombay than even I do so <laughs> but listen um before I let you go I I want to ask you um you know any sort of message to startup entrepreneurs uh having you know done it multiple times over in India well I think it's obvious uh having listened to this discussion anyone would conclude Gosh, if she can do it, anyone can. <laughs> so really, and I mean it. I mean, I I didn't come from you know any kind of background that would predict this. Um, I don't have you know I don't I don't even have the right language or you know context. So I think the fact that um, that you can that I have built you know something of value and uh, and built a really lovely organization, given you know hundreds of people a really nice job and have done all of that shows that it really is possible in digital India. I think we are so fortunate. I almost think it's like a modern industrial revolution that's happening right now. It's a historical event, and that's going to create these amazing opportunities for people that have the dream and have the ambition. So if you have an idea, if you have even a, a glimpse of an idea, please try, please pursue it, because genuinely it has been easier than I would have ever imagined. So. Well, listen, that's hugely inspiring and uh, and I and I wish you all the bestest. Um and and you know, don't leave India anytime soon. <laughs> I can't now. I have a mother-in-law, I'm not allowed. <laughs> listen, thank you so much for making the time and um and hopefully see you very, very soon. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. One thing I learned through the conversation today is that in the world of fintech, it's all about your product and not so much about how much you can charm. If the ecosystem understands your products, ethic and value system, they will not care about your gender or color. So for all the women entrepreneurs out there, let's make our journeys onwards and upwards.